Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from around the world together through sharing stories and making connections. Doesn't matter if you like wrenching or riding or collecting. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a novice. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, then you're in the right place. This time we talk to an inspirational bike rider and mechanic from Florida who relearned riding again with one leg. Then we look at the seldom explored history of click shifting. What is the price of having that little click instead of just having it be? And then finally, the story that I never knew that I would want to hear, which is the story of someone who was attacked while cycling by an elephant. You have a lot of podcasts that you could be listening to right now, and I really appreciate you coming along with me for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So imagine if something kept you from cycling, and imagine it was something traumatic like losing your leg. Well, my next guest went through just that, but then one day after years, he started riding again. I'm Mo. I live in Crystal River, Florida. I'm a bike mechanic, and I'm an amputee. I used to be very competitive before when I had two legs. Lost my leg in a car accident in 2007. Went seven years without riding a bike due to surgeries and complications and just just back to back, being in bed in surgeries about almost seven years. Then 2014, I was working at a bike shop. Actually, I was managing a bike shop in Long Beach, California. And I guess that kind of is where the story starts of me being an amputee cyclist, I guess. I was in surgeries and back to back. I mean, I, I didn't even look at a bike for about six years. And for that next year or so, I had acquired a job, not not being able to ride yet or whatever, but I had, I had acquired the job because I was feeling better. I didn't have any more scheduled surgeries. And so I figured I need to get out of the house and get back into the swing of things. And my buddies are all in the bike industry. So they, you know, it was fairly easy for me to get in the work. And then about, about a year into that is when this poor woman came in with a stripped down, basically just the frame and the cranks, the handlebars, basically. She was crying. I already knew what happened because it's almost a daily thing in Long Beach, the bike stuff. 
she was at school and her bike was locked up outside and got stripped by herself. I guess she's a, a student trying to work and exchange student and she couldn't she tried to come in to get the bike what it needed to get it rolling again and just new wheels alone was worth more than the department store bike she brought into me so i I really felt for her so i I sold her one that i just so happened to have used sitting there for fairly cheap made her day the frame she brought me actually was a frame that fit me so by random parts that i had accumulated over the time since working there just slapped together a, a little single speed, you know, little track bike frame thing. And then it says, screw it. I hopped on it. And my coworker's like, what the heck are you doing? And I said, I guess it's about time for me to get back on a bike. <laughs> so I just, I had the trap on the one pedal and I balanced on the, on the doorway and I just rode out of the store. The store is actually on a, in a little, it's in the city, and it's like a square block, and it's all grass for all the apartment buildings surrounding, so it's like a, like a big litter box, really, for all the apartment dogs and cats. And, but uh, the nice sidewalk all around, so I rode the bike for the first time all around that and came back in, and from that point on, I've been back on a bike. What did it feel like your first couple of feet? It was it was surreal. It, it was amazing. I was like, "Am I really doing this right now?" No, I'm really doing this right now. Because my coworker, he uh, hopped on the skateboard real quick and had his cell phone and he videoed me. He followed behind me, and so when I got back in the shop, I was able to watch, and it looked like I had been doing it for a long time already. I wasn't all wibbly wobbly. I wasn't. I just looked like I already knew what I was doing. It was like actually that saying when it says it's like riding the bike. But the first few, several feet was just like, oh, I got this. I'm back in the game. (laughs) What was the major change that you noticed having to ride a bike with one leg? Not going to the left because I'm a left left side amputee. I'm an AK, so I'm above the knee. I'm actually above half of my femurs, so I'm trans-femoral is what I'm considered. So I'm I'm way up, and so if I lean to the left, I better have my body to counter-lean that, you know, so I don't actually tip over. And that, that took a little bit of getting used to. I've never fell over yet, still to date, like going fast or whatever. I've been hit by a few cars since riding a bike, but... The only times I've fallen is when I'm actually like standing still and I'm trying to like get my footing or something and then I just fall over. <laughs> uh, and it's always on the left side because obviously I don't have anything to put down on that side. So that's basically the only hurdle. I don't even, I just don't use the only custom, the only thing I do to my, cause I ride a regular standard upright road bike. So I have to use a three piece crank set. So I don't, I just don't attach the left crank arm at all. So I just have just the drive side only. Can you do clipped or not clipped? I, I clipped in, yeah. I'm, I'm clipped in now. Uh, I didn't at first just because of the awkwardness of it at first. Um, when I had two legs, I was definitely clipped in. Uh, when I was riding road and both BMX, both, I was always clipped in. 
when I started out as an amputee, I, I just I, I used the trap. Mainly because when I get off the bike, I don't have my crutches or my wheelchair to hop straight into. I'm hopping. So I needed a shoe that didn't have like the cleat underneath for me to slip on when I'm hopping around, you know. But they have the, the nice mountain bike shoes now that look almost like road and they have like a recessed clip on them. And that's what I use now. So before the accident, before the amputation, how much did you ride? Uh, say a couple hundred miles a week, I guess. That was when I was not working. Then working, obviously, that went down to about 100 miles a week, I guess, or so. How did you look at cycling back then? Pretty much the same as I do now, just not to the degree that I do now. I, I feel, I feel, like I would describe it the same. It's just stronger now, more intense. Why did you start cycling in the very beginning? Have you been cycling your whole life when you were a kid? Yeah, did you pick it up yeah. as a teen? Or? No, I, my, my, since childhood, I was basically taught myself how to ride a bike. It was a, I put a little pillow inside a, a woman's step-through frame road bike and kick-pushed. It had no pedals, and I just could barely reach the handlebars, and I, and I would just pick my feet up and coast, and... And that's pretty much how I started. And then I got a little 20-inch Huffy back in 80-something, and that was my first BMX. And never needed training wheels for it because I was already playing around with the other one. And so started really young. And then fixing my own bike was just something I did. I was always either changing it or doing something or acquiring other bikes and swapping parts from this bike to that one. And you know, I'll trade bikes out with the neighbor kids, and I was always the bike kid. I was always helping. I was always at the local track. Then, as I got older, it just a buddy of mine was into road, and more so, and he never really was into uh, BMX. But so I, I went on a few rides with him, and I was stuck. So that was where it was at. The long distance, the country roads, uh, just having time to think. Is having time to release bad energy and then just, I don't know, it's, it's everything for me. It's nothing I really can put a one finger on. You know, it's a multifaceted, there's a lot of reasons, you know, for cycling. I get it. I yeah. don't know if it's the motion, just being on two wheels, the vibration, and just, I don't know if it's the chemicals being released when, you know, the endorphins and whatnot. Maybe it's the combination of everything, the freedom. It's like I still have that freedom, even though I'm a baby. I'm missing my left leg. Basically, now I'm the right to be in a wheelchair. I'd rather be on my bike. In the state of Florida, don't quote me on this, that statute, you know, the Title Three, Section 36, something, something, says I'm basically that I'm allowed to use my, my bicycle as a mobility device indoors, anywhere, no matter what, no questions asked. Because it's a non-motorized powered, you know, vehicle, it's manually powered. I can basically just call it my walker, you know, because I don't pedal it in the store, that'd be rude, but... So I sit on it, you know, like on the top tube, I straddle the top tube and just like kick push. And that way I don't have to hop around the store and I don't have to leave my extensive bike out front. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Losing cycling, losing that outlet, the chemicals, the the feeling, the, all that stuff, and having that gone for years. That's what a good question. Like? Yeah, that's a heavy question that people don't realize to ask, you know. And it's not just cycling. It is for me, but for anyone else, it's whatever it is that they're into, right? Because um, cycling to me is a gift. It's definitely something that it's a privilege. There's been studies done that say that we defy the laws of physics riding a bicycle. I don't quite understand that because we ride them quite well, but to me, a bike is a gift. It's not one of the best machines man's ever made, in my opinion. I mean, there's obviously dozens of other more important ones, but the machine, the, the bike is, there's nothing negative you can say about it. So it being such a strong gift to me in my life and the things that it, it enabled me to do when I was a kid, the freedom, the feeling, we all know, to have that taken away, that's, I mean, that's a really crappy feeling, you know, to know or to think and to be almost thoroughly convinced that you're never going to put the bicycle again. And that was so important. I had that taken away temporarily, and it crushed me. It really did. But I, I stayed, I guess, positive. I, I stayed hopeful. I, I, I said, no, let's just see where this goes. You know, I'm, I'm healthy. I smoke weed because I'd rather do that than pharmaceutical drugs. You know, and that really helps a lot in my life. That and cycling. And little by little, I, I, you know, getting back into the the bike industry, you know, the the work and everything. And then just out of nowhere, that woman, when she came in and she was so distraught about not having her bike anymore and the things that she was not able to do anymore simply because of not having a bike, that meant her losing her job or house, probably schooling, you know. That was tough. And then the reward that she got, you know, when I gave her the bike or whatever, and she was able to leave and have a bike. I I know what that feels like when I'm, that first time I got back on that bike. I, I mean, that having that gift returned again for the second time in my life was, it was great. I mean, that's like the definition of bike karma there. You helped her out, and for some reason that, flip the switch in you that mm -hmm. I'm going to get right back on right now. And then you did it. And then it worked. Had you ever thought about doing it before that point? Or was it really just that moment? You know, the other thought crossed my mind, but I guess I was too chicken in a sense, because I feel like one fall, one wreck, one, because I have a lot of implants, you know, metal put inside me now and you know, just one fall, I could break my hip again, or I could do this wrong, or, you know, then I'm months back out of the game. That weighed really heavy on me. But that day, for something, just clicked. I put the bike together within 45 minutes or so, give or take, and I was on it. It was like a switch flip, literally. It was like I was not worried about falling or wrecking or getting hit or what injuries may occur, because that's what was holding me back. So I let that go, and <laughs> yeah, I've helped out quite a few people with bikes, being in the, the bike industry. I now own my own business, uh, Moe's Wrench, here in Florida, Crystal River, Florida. I'm not into retail, but just service and repair. I do house calls. 
I'll come if you get stranded on the road here locally. I'll come snag you, get you, either bring you a new chain or whatever it is, or fix your flat, send you on your way, or I'll come drop you off somewhere you need. That's what I do here now, just helping the community, mostly donation based. That's what I run on now. So if people want to get a hold of you for service or if they want to follow you on social media, where would they go? So Instagram would be Moe's Wrench, M-O-E-S, Wrench. It could be Moe'sWrench.com as well. Facebook page is Moe's Wrench. I'm uh, Wrench at gmail.com. My work number, so area code is still Long Beach, California area code, but it's been my number for so many years. It's 562 Three eight seven three 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 one. If you need service, my services are in Crystal River, Florida. It's three four four two eight or two nine or two three. The zip codes on that. I do surrounding areas as well. I'll I'll dive into the other county. Citrus County is where I'm at. Where I'm based. Take care and thank you so much for sharing. All right, you're welcome. All right, bye. Okay, it is the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories public service announcement, the ABC Quick Check, because I don't want to lose a single listener. So what's going on in spring? People are taking out their bikes for the first time. Maybe some of the bikes that they've left in the shed over the winter and they're yanking them out and they're ready and they're eager to ride and they feel like they've got limited time and they want to get out there and you still need to do an ABC quick check before you go out there. You don't know what happened over the summer. The mice could have been in there. An owl could have gotten in there and messed with your brakes. Who knows what went on? Uh, Maybe some pesky kids were doing something. If you've been zwifting all winter long and doing indoor riding, you could still mess up your bike even though it's inside on a trainer. So do your ABC quick check before every ride, especially after the bike's been sitting a while. So what is the ABC quick check? Well, hopefully you know it by now, but it is to check the air in your tires and to check the general condition of your tires. B is for brakes. If you can pull your brake handles all the way down to the handlebar, it means they're probably too loose and they may not stop you. Check and make sure the brake pads are hitting the surface that they're supposed to be hitting. Make sure that they're not pushed into the tire accidentally. If you have disc brakes, make sure that there's still some pad there and that you won't be rubbing metal on metal. Look at the lines. Are they frayed or do they look good? Then C is for chain line. People are like, oh, chain line, that's not dangerous. Well, it could be if you've got half a link gone and you happen to have your chain break when you're putting a lot of power down, you could get hurt. It could cause a tumble. So yeah, check the chain, check the gears, check the derailleurs. Make sure they didn't get bumped around since the last time you stored them. And finally, the quick is for checking the quick releases. If you have those, if you have through axles, make sure that the wheels are on the bike. And quick also stands for doing a quick overall check of the bike before you barrel down a hill. I like to pick it up and just kind of bounce it to see if it makes any weird noises or if anything falls off that shouldn't. So get in the habit of doing an ABC quick check before every time you ride. And once again, back to the show.
So what is the price of a click? Yeah, that click when you change gears on a bicycle. For years, that click was elusive. It's called index shifting, and it allows you to shift exactly into the middle of the exact space for that gear. If you're a cyclist who grew up on index shifting, you probably think of your gears as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, maybe 11, 12. But for those of us raised in the time before the click was perfected, we think of our shifting as high gears and low gears, big rings and little rings. Index shifting has made it so you don't even have to look down and see what's happening. Now, before you dismiss this as some diatribe by some retro grouch, this is just a talk. There's no judgment involved. A perfectly tuned index bike is a pleasure to ride around on. But the story is that there's a lot of drama behind that little click. Two of the biggest cycling companies in the world were about to wage a global battle. Races were won and lost. A war of old standards versus new innovations took place. Bicycle engineering was pushed to one of its finest precision frontiers. And it's all about making a click noise to let you know you put it in the right gear. So yeah, an entire industry and sport was turned inside and out because a clicking noise was perceived as innovation versus a ratcheting noise. And the whole process of shifting was going to change from a human skill to an engineering mechanism. Going back a long, long time ago, bikes had a single gear. And if you didn't like it, maybe you could flip your back wheel around and there'd be a different gear on the other side. There was briefly a time where there was a bike that you could pedal backwards on for a different gear and forwards for a different gear. But when the derailleur, which is that rear mech as it's known and it's its nickname, that rear derailleur would take you to easier pedaling or harder pedaling to go faster. It was a huge breakthrough. Once it had been pretty well established, it operated by operating a cable and the cable by pulling a little lever would move it either tighter or would loosen it up. And the spring would allow it to move in or out across the back gears. In those days, people could feel those gears. You could feel them engage. You could feel when there was too much what's called chatter in the back and you would move it just a, a little tiny bit and it would make that chatter stop. These micro adjustments only take a few moments to talk about with somebody who purchases a bike, but even that was too much and people just wanted to click and go. At one point, some of the best derailleurs on the planet were made by a company called Suntour and they invented a shape on the back derailleur and a movement that made a great chain line which meant the chain would move in as straight a line as possible to the gears in the front and the back. But just as that patent was wearing out and other companies like Shimano were moving in, along came a huge push towards indexed shifting. See, the problem is just like on a guitar or a stringed instrument, the cables on a bicycle go out of tune and they stretch. So yeah, it's metal, but it stretches. The spacing for index shifting has to be perfect. Like it can't flex very much at all and still work. If not, it starts making that chatter noise of not being perfectly aligned. 
And because the twister or the lever that you have definitely goes into a click position, there's no fiddling with it and moving it just a little bit forward or a little bit back. It's, it's clicked in and you've either got to tune up your bike to fit that click or you have to uh, live with the annoying chatter. I had an old Bridgestone Kabuki back in the day and it had a huge flywheel type of device on the back derailleur trying to evenly space out the cable movement. It was a weird looking thing and it never really caught on. And then once the companies figured out how to do it, both Suntour and Shimano, there were different standards of how far apart the teeth should be on the back gear so that one system wouldn't work with the other system and it was a battle for dominance. And even though they made very fine stuff, the Suntour company went from number one to almost non-existent in only a few years. To get that click to work, Shimano had to develop shifting cable, which wouldn't move the same way that brake cable used to. In the old days, you could use the same type of cable housing for both braking and for shifting. It wouldn't really make a big difference because you could always fine tune it using the lever. But with precise index shifting, you had to have it be very, very, very precise. So therefore, now you need to stock two different types of cable housing. Furthermore, if you use the brake cable housing on the shifting, it would make it so the shifting might not work as crisply. But if you use the shifting cable housing on the brakes accidentally, it could bust open and make it so that the whole brake is inoperable, causing accidents and deaths, as the lawyers like to say. So that was fun. So the next step was trying to get the pros to adopt it. Professional cyclists certainly do have a herd mentality, which at first helps to resist new technologies, but eventually leads to everybody riding and using the same thing. And after only a few years, the entire peloton was riding with index shifting. The European and small-scale manufacturers followed suit, and while you can still buy, set up, and use friction shifting, it's only now a tiny percentage of the market. So you might be saying, who cares? It's just one way of doing things versus another way of doing things. But just as a story, we have lost something. And that is the ability to friction shift. It's an entire skill set that only a few cyclists know how to do these days. Akin to how handwriting, and especially cursive handwriting, has suffered because of keyboards and touchscreens. And just like beautiful handwriting, it's a lost art that when done properly, can put you even more in tune with your bicycle. As you may notice, there's a crisis in bike shops right now. They have a hard time getting bike parts and a hard time getting bikes. And with index shifting, there's very little cross compatibility between different components. The widths of chains varies. The number of clicks on any actuator. Campy stuff and Shimano stuff has different spacing. And while SRAM and Shimano have a lot of stuff that works together, there's some stuff still there that doesn't work together. With friction shifting though, because you can make such little tiny minute changes using your lever, you can change a lot and make a lot of things fit that don't normally fit. I've thought a lot about this and how to explain it to the not mechanical person, and it's kind of like a violin versus a guitar. Cue the violin versus guitar noises. So a violin doesn't have frets. So it has a fingerboard and there's no delineated lines for where to put your fingers. It's kind of more of a feel to it and a general location that with practice you get better and better at. 
as your violin goes out of tune, you can gradually move your finger just a little micron this way or a little micron that way and preserve the note. Whereas with a guitar, if your guitar is out of tune, you have to stop everything and tune it up because you can't put your finger where the frets get in the way. So when you're going to build your gravel dream bike, or your touring bike, or your bike which you want minimal maintenance for, sure, you can go for the latest and the greatest. It's going to be a delight to ride around on. But if you have more than one bike, consider making one of them friction shifting. The touch and feel of being able to move the shifting lever just a little tiny bit this way or that way to get the perfect sweet spot. The freedom of not having to worry about if you've tuned up your bike lately. Just being able to get out and ride it. Of course, still doing an ABC quick check. But yeah, the ability to compensate for any slight stretching of the cable or anything going just slightly out of tune. It's a kind of power. I used to find myself being a big advocate of having dual shifters so that they could shift back and forth between friction and index. You know, in case I was on a long tour and things weren't going right and I didn't have the opportunity to do a relaxed full tune-up, I could always switch to friction. But then it took me a while because it was like friction was my fallback. And it was like the thing that I was going to do if the friction stopped being on point. I mean, I know some people are going to say, yeah, you can do your barrel adjusters, but try doing that while you're going down a hill. It took me a while, even me, to be like, I'm just going to forget about the index. I mean, I'm good enough at shifting where I'm just going to give up on the click entirely, at least with a couple of my bikes, even if they are newer. I'm just going to set my whole bike up based on friction shifting. And in 2021, to have a friction shift bike is kind of an OG move. It's not just a retro grouch thing, even though it is a retro grouch thing. It's kind of a purest of cycling machinery. It's simpler, it's easier, and it's way easier to maintain. I mean, look how devoted fixed gear riders are to the experience that some of them don't even use brakes. Even if you have brakes and gears, there's got to be something to be said for being really in tune with the machine itself of being aware of the dynamic between human and machine integrating together to move. So if you ever get the chance, try going click free for a little while and tell me what you think. For more about friction shifting, I recommend you go look up the late great Sheldon Brown. And for those of you who are really old school with Sturmy Archer internal shifting gear hubs, Probably not best to go friction shifting with those, even though you can, because unlike standard derailleurs, the internal geared ones can be damaged by not having the shift points be exact. And there is an article about that on the late great Sheldon Brown's website as well. Now we're at the mid-roll thank yous. Thank you everybody who's helped spread stickers around the world, including Suffolk Cycle Works in the UK, Bobbin Sprocket from my hometown area, Chris Longbone, Rowan Debonair, and Bad Idea Rides. And also, thanks for the stickers from Bad Idea Rides as well. If you'd like to get some stickers too, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or you can DM me on any of the social media platforms. 
for following on Podbean, which is very appreciated. BRD5277, Freaky Dave, Biden Rogue Email, number one. Sishjedstad, thanks for following on Podbean. Everybody who's left a kind review, I really appreciate it. And not only that, but it helps to raise us in the search rankings. I'd like to thank all my supporters on Patreon for helping to pay for the cost of the show and helping to keep the stickers free for the asking. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help me pay for the cost of the show. Just sign up for Patreon and search up Bike Karma. As always, I'd also like to thank Fred Thomas with AD Bikes, the new face of Astro Daimler Bicycles. His other business is the Frame and Wheel, where Fred can help you turn your bicycles, accessories, and parts into time, space, and cash. Fred and I were talking the other day about how to get people to understand what he does and how now is one of the best times ever to work with the Frame and Wheel to get your bicycle stuff sold. Fred's an honest bicycle-loving guy with a lot of integrity, and we kind of dismissed the usual advertising tricks and gimmicks. Instead, we decided to really just focus on the situation, lay it out there for you, and let you decide. So here's the way we see it. Number one, you probably have some quality cycling gear parts or maybe even a bicycle laying around that you use a lot less than others. Maybe not at all. Two, you also think, why should I have somebody like Fred at the frame and wheel sell them? I'll do it myself, someday. But you haven't. It's hard. That's why people use services like the frame and wheel to do it for them. Taking pictures, providing detailed descriptions, knowing what prices to ask, answering potential buyers' questions. It's all hard work. If you were going to do it yourself, you probably would have done it already, especially because of our next point. So point three is that right now is one of the best times in recent history to sell used bicycles and parts. The pandemic has really messed up the supply chain for bicycles and parts all over the world. Cycling is still something that you can do safely and people feel safe about doing it. But as their parts break, as they wanna go out and upgrade their bicycles, they're finding that even if they had the money, it's not there. So the supply and demand is making selling prices pretty good if you're the seller right now. And Fred deals with this stuff day in and day out, so he has his fingers on the pulse of the market. He knows what things are in demand and what things aren't. He knows how to attractively get stuff in front of people who are ready to buy. He's kindly agreed to send out a sticker with each order that he sends out, and he's constantly asking me for more stickers. I could send him a big giant double handful and he'll say, I need some more stickers surprisingly soon. So to summarize the case we put before you, number one, you probably have some stuff that Fred would be really good at selling. Number two, if you're waiting because you think you're gonna do it on your own, you probably would have done it already. But deep down somewhere, you realize that it's a hassle to do it right. And lastly, the time is right to get rid of the stuff you don't need. It is definitely a seller's market out there, especially for items which are highly in demand. So contact Fred at the Frame and Wheel on any of the social media platforms or on his website at theframeandwheel.com. Let Fred help you to get more time, space, and cash from your bicycles, accessories, and parts. Now back to the show.
So when I started this show, it was because I was hearing different stories from all over the bicycle world, from all the different tribes, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to bring people together so that they could hear the stories from the other people who love bicycles? And maybe like so many other things, it would help to just bring us together and help people to realize that we're all human beings. Well, when I started that, I was kind of thinking there was a list in my mind of all these different stories that I imagined I would eventually get if I kept doing it. I knew one was going to be somebody found a body in the woods. I mean, we all who mountain bike on trails were always like, oh god, I hope I don't find a body in the woods. And so it must be a story that's out there, you know, people getting their bikes stolen, people going on really, really long tours, you know, everybody's sat on a bike wondering, you know, wonder how far I could go. And people, funny things happen while you're on the bike. All those things. I did not expect to hear a story about someone being attacked by an elephant while cycling. And that's what this next segment is about. So here's the next story, the one I never anticipated, the one that I didn't see coming. My name is Henry Gold, and I run a company called TDA Global Cycling, which specializes in very long bicycle tours around the world. company, we, we run um, bicycle tours right now on every continent. Since 2003, we kind of expanded every year or two out of another uh, epic tour. Uh, in 2011, we had a new tour in India that started in where the Taj Mahal is. Anyway, it was it was going to cross India, uh, essentially north to south, ending, ending up uh, in, um, in Kanyakumari, which is uh, at the bottom of India. And this was a uh, Several week long trip in uh, in the south of India already, and we were almost at the end. Towards the end, we had eight days to go. When um, on the day we were leaving, we were staying in a wonderful lodge in the forest. You know, we we cycle. Uh, the group cycle independently. Essentially, everybody eats breakfast, packs up, and leaves. So people go a different pace, different uh, groups, sometimes by themselves, etc. Anyway, one of the riders was having an issue, and I stayed with her as a kind of a sweet man, the, the person who, who was the last one, and eventually she managed to get her bike in order, and we left together. Well, as I said, we were staying in a, in a kind of a semi-wild area already, because as I said, it was a, the day before we started in Mysore, um, and we were just starting, we were actually staying, as I said, in a nice lodge in the forest, forested area, which was, by the way, between two uh, national parks. The day before, we actually crossed the national parks where, where we saw elephants. Uh, and then in the later in the afternoon, we were going to cross another national park where there were elephants. But we were not told by anybody, we were not forewarned that some of the elephants tend to somehow move around and uh, perhaps go from one national park to another. Um, so we had no awareness that there was going to be elephants because otherwise we would have taken more precautions. 
Yeah, it was just nice and green, lovely. You know, not you couldn't see much because I said you were going to kind of a, a forest which had a road. The Indian roads, you ever been to India? India, India, many of the side roads are basically very narrow, one-lane road, which um, you know, when, when if another vehicle is coming uh, or wants to pass you, then it has to go off the road. And the road also is kind of a. It was asphalted. It was pretty decent, um, but but the shoulders, you you, there would be a really high drop. So it was almost like a six-inch drop from the road to the shoulder. But as I said, it's not, there was not much to see except the forest, the greener. And you were kind of cycling in a beautiful forested area, green, green space in a very uh, narrow uh, road. Um, mine is a kind of a cross bike that I sort of modified for my own comfort. But, um, you know, it wasn't not in particular specific. It wasn't a cheap bike, but not expensive. I think it cost me $1,200 or something Canadian. And about five, I don't know, five miles into the ride, they were going up the hill in a forested area. Um, she was about oh, three yards of me. Um, but ahead of us, we saw an elephant, a young elephant with two young ones crossing. And I say ahead of us, maybe about 100 yards ahead of us, maybe a little bit further. I was very excited for her because she was with me in Africa years before. And we went to a section in Africa which we call um, Elephant Highway. And everybody on that Elephant Highway sees a lot of elephants. And she's the only one who ever saw an elephant. So I was very excited for her that she was seeing elephants. And they kept on riding. She ahead of me. And then in my mind, as we getting closer, I kept saying to myself, well, it's got to be here. If I'm going to catch a glimpse of this elephant, it's got to be somewhere here. Or I've already passed it. And as I asked thought crossed my mind and elephant literally charged through the trees and uh, when I saw the elephant it had been 10-15 yards at max uh, running full speed at me so I I at that point uh, you know you, you do what your mind <laughs> tells you very quickly and this road was very narrow so I thought the only way I can get away from this one is turning around and going downhill uh, which I tried, but it was an air road, and I tried to make a sharp turn, and I fell. And then, um, so the the next thing the mind said, you know, you got to now zigzag into the forest, find your way. And I sort of tried to do that, literally almost in the direction of the elephant, because I figured that he'll, the elephant will have to make a sharp turn. And I did that. I heard the elephant stepping on a bike, so I sort of congratulated myself that my tactics were working. And then I zigzagged again and managed to get into the forest, which wasn't that difficult because the forest was only maybe about 10, as I said, about 10 yards from, from the road. And the next thing I recall is uh, something grabbing me by the ankle, which was the trunk of the elephant, and I was in there. And then I, being a good Canadian who spent a lot of time in, in bear country, they taught us, you know, going to give the animal as little as little exposure as possible. So I tried to go into fetal position. The next thing I remember, or the next thought in my mind was that my helmet was cracking. And I sort of said, well, this is very interesting. What happens next? 
And then the next, uh, I either blanked out for whatever time I did, or my mind simply erased what happened in the next little few actions, because when I was aware of what was happening around me, again, I already saw the elephant essentially running away from me just as fast as he or she attacked me. I'm assuming it's a she, that she was probably a mother of the two young ones, but it could have been a male watching from the sideline, watching the family. It's hard to know. Were you hurt very badly? I was hurt. I, 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 I mean, I'm literally lucky to be alive because I had several broken bones. From the pressure of the helmet, of the, I should say, of the foot of the elephant stepping on me and grinding the my face into the ground, uh, the orbital bone was uh, cracked. There was some ear damage, there was some eye damage, but uh, essentially that was recovered. I had my my left arm was broken in four pieces. I had a I had a cracked lower back. I had uh, several ribs that were cracked. So yeah, that was basically it. I when I first uh, lay there on the ground, I was convinced that my back was broken or something was broken. So having gone through first aid training in wilderness, I was doing kind of a self-evaluation, what was working, what was not working, because I was convinced uh, that my spine or neck or something was broken. So I was doing that uh, that stuff, uh, you know, bit by bit. I moved my toes first to see if they were working. I moved my hands. I realized my left hand was not moving at all, and, and so on. You know, just kept on doing whatever I did. Uh, I eventually pulled myself. I moved my head even though I shouldn't have because I couldn't be paralyzed with my neck would have been broken, but at that point I just felt I was in the forest and God knows anybody really was fine. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I pulled myself into a fetal position and at this point I realized this is dangerous to keep on going. So I, I called for help, hoping that somebody would hear me. And uh, eventually someone did. And eventually the phone, uh, well, the, the rider was in front of me. She came back, she heard me. She came back and I basically said to her, don't even come near me, just call an ambulance. And essentially that's what happened. And then the rest is also kind of interesting as far as rescue and hospital stay, etc. But I, initially I was self-rescuing myself, just doing examination, what's broken, what's working. I was lying on the ground trying to decide what to do. But anyway, that's the essence of it. Interesting enough, I still have the bike. The bike wasn't crashed. What was crashed was the back wheel. If you ever come to visit me, then uh, you will go by a tree, and on one of the branches of the tree, there is a bent wheel. And most people, of course, have no idea why would anybody hang a bent wheel <laughs> on the branches of your house. <laughs> but that's where it's at. The frame was intact. The other thing that was broken, interesting enough, was just the back carrier that I, you know, that I had my bag on it. So that was demolished, and the back wheel was demolished. But the frame, the frame was intact, and the front from the bicycle was intact. Why did the elephant attack you on a bicycle? Like, why do you think the elephant went after you? Well, you know, there are different reasons. The actual reason one will never know. I can tell you um, that uh, there was a car that just passed 
but the same time that we saw the elephant, and it actually honked. It honked at the elephant. So maybe that was the reason. I think, uh, you know, this is part of what's been happening to wildlife in general. You know, we encroach on it, and um, animals lash out when they feel that, uh, you know, that uh, they have no choice. When I was in the hospital lying, I had my computer with me, and uh, I sort of did some research what's happening to the elephants in India, and, and one of the facts I came across was about 400 people a year are killed by elephants in India, and that is usually uh, because the farmers try to keep them away from their fields, and and the elephants eventually charge and damage and um, yeah, so that's what happens. You know, the, in general, there's a confrontation between wildlife and human beings for survival. You know, in India in particular, the populations keep growing. Africa the same way, and the animals are lashing out. There's also some rogue elephants which grow up without elders, and apparently that's part of the problem as well. You know, there are sort of these young elephants who don't have anybody to put them in place. So that's another reason I think that that could have happened. And so yeah, anything from uh, being uh, scared, I suppose, by the vehicle or or the young one, sorry, or the mother being just trying to protect uh, the young ones and somehow, you know, she saw me as a threat or, so, or whatever. Who knows? I'll never know why. <laughs> All I know is I'm alive. I didn't have, a, didn't have any negative reaction, PTSD or whatever. I'll tell you one thing. I was staying at the hotel right after I got out of the hospital five days, five or six days after. They, they let me out of the hospital because they patched me up and I, I didn't look very good. But the owner of the hotel in which we stayed before we... As a, as a group, and who actually suggested the hospital and the surgeon who worked on me, and I felt really obliged. So he, he said, do I mind speaking to the media? And I said, no, no, sure, no problem. And so TV station came to interview me, and uh, now they wanted to, to see the gory details, so they unbuttoned my shirt, and I, I looked terrible. My face was, you know... Uh, as if I just went through a 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali. Um, but anyway, so they asked me questions, etc., and then I sort of agreed. I talked about the injuries and what I was doing there and so on. And then we stopped the interview, and um, and that was it. And then I, I was a little upset about the way the interview was going. So then I said, you know what, you want to hear the story, here's the story. So I called him back. And I talked about my experience with wildlife and protection of wildlife and my mental work which I did in Africa, etc. And, you know, and, and the producer was yawning. <laughs> he wasn't interested in hearing. You know, they just wanted a good sensational story. Uh, so, you know, that's part of the, you know. So anyway, bottom line is I, I have no bitterness. I didn't have PTSD. I, I have nothing. And I'm just uh, very happy I survived. And, you know, in, in, in some way, I would say it improved my life in many ways. It took a long time to recover. I had to have another operation here in Canada. Um, but, it, you know, it focuses. When you go through something like this, it focus, focuses you on, uh, you know, what do you do, how, why do you do it, and what do you want to do with, uh, with the fact that you're still alive. Well, you know, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, uh, when people ask me about the accident, you know, I, I got into into cycling or touring, cycle touring, because I thought uh, that this is the best way of seeing the world, of interacting with locals. 
you know, I, I again, I, I, I work in Africa, and I've seen what people come. They usually come on these touristy safaris and beaches, etc. They don't get to know, they don't get to see, they don't get to feel the country, the people. You get on a bicycle, everything changes. I mean, I, I have dozens of stories. I begin to interact with people, and I'm not an extrovert. I'm a very introverted person. But the minute I'm on a bicycle, you know, the, the world opens up to me, and, and people do not feel me as a threat. They don't see me. In fact, they see me sweating and they feel me, they, they want to encourage me. You know, we've been offered money by locals because they think we are poor because we're on bicycles. But bicycle is, is to me, is the most wonderful uh, wonderful machine ever created. And touring on a bicycle, to me, uh, there's nothing comparable. You know, I, I've, I've been in over 100 countries and nothing compares to being on a bicycle in a country. Nothing in the world. I, I take uh, sitting in a outside under what I call a million-star hotel over any five any Taj Mahal, if you will, in Agra, which is where we started the tour, Agra. And, and I wasn't a bike tour. You know, I was a commuter when I got into this business, and I decided to do something like this. So to me, it's, you know, I, I'm a convert, and, and uh, to such an extent, I'm sure people around me are tired of hearing it. What's your favorite cycling story that you wish people would ask you about more? <laughs> well, you know, people ask all the time, this is the best place to cycle, and I said, there's no such thing. Every place is great. You just open your eyes and allow it to enjoy yourself. Um, I don't know. I mean, I get great satisfaction. My biggest satisfaction, perhaps, was all the skeptic and cynic who said, it's impossible to cross Africa on a bicycle. You know, from friends who thought I lost my mind, to people who were just, I thought I was suicidal, and so on. So, you know, uh, we, we decided, I had a partner at the beginning, and when I started the company, we decided we were going to take us 100 days to cross, uh, 100 days of cycling to cross Africa. And we actually were about uh, 20 kilometers from Cape Town. We were actually here. We were earlier than we told the press and the family and the media that we were going to arrive in Cape Town. And uh, I, I had a problem. I had to do something. So I stopped the, the group. At that point, we were going as a group because it was the final final few kilometers and we want to come as a group. And uh, I stopped everybody and I said, there's some issue. We have to take a break. And I waited an hour and people were getting really restless. But what I was doing was just delaying everybody so that the media and the family wouldn't, you know, wouldn't miss it when we get in there. And to me, it was considered such a wonderful, joyful experience because it sort of helped make me feel, well, nobody thought we could do this and look, we're an hour early, so I have to delay everybody. <laughs> So it was kind of a funny story, as I said, but uh, but that was, you know, that was it. Uh, I mean, as far as stories, it's, you know, to be honest with you, you know, the best stories is, uh, is not what you see, is the people you meet, is the unexpected interactions you have, is the challenges you, you, you face. For example, you know, um, I guess, what, a year ago or so, a year and a half ago, we had a new tour, Trans-Himalaya, started... Um, 
in India and ended up in, in Nepal. And we were going through, uh, on this tour, we had to go to passes that are over 5,000 meters high, which is, I don't know how many, how much is that in feet. But, you know, I, I was, uh, what, 67 years old, and uh, I kept saying to myself, what are you doing? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? There's no way you're going to be able to cross this kind of passes. Well, guess what? I did it slowly, bit by bit. I, and I wasn't the only one. Most of the groups were, you know, in the 50s and, and 60s. You know, it's kind of a personal challenge that you give yourself and you do it. And, and uh, that's the joy of it, you know, accomplishing what, what you think you cannot do. If people want to find out more about your organization and some of the adventures you've been on, where would they go? So, so the company's been around now since 2002. Um, before COVID hit, we were uh, we had epic tours just about you know, over 80 countries. If you want to take a look, if anybody's interested, one has to go to just has to go to the website called tdaglobalcycling.com. That's tdaglobalcycling.com. There you can see the upcoming trips. We have one again a personal challenge. It'll be Southern USA for me, which goes from. Uh, coast to coast of southern USA. We have another two tours coming in Canada, one on the east coast, one on the west coast. We have other tours planned for the fall. All that information is on TDA Global Cycling. And if people have any particular questions, they can either email us or call, leave a message. We'll get back to them. I'm encouraging people even right now, uh, particularly those who have never been on bicycle touring, get in there. This is the best way to, to deal with COVID. Go out into the nature, go out on a bicycle, whether you do a short trip or a long trip or even something like we do much longer. You know, we differ from most cycling touring companies. Um, they literally specialize in long trips that can be broken. You can join us for, uh, you know, as little as 10 days or as long as five and a half months when you're on those epic trips. But we are really good at and we are exceptional in order to be able to do these kind of trips. We are kind of what I sometimes joke around. We are a logistic company that happens to be cycling. We are terrific under pressure. My staff is remarkable. They make my life very easy. In fact, when I got injured, I was basically out for over a year. The, my staff just took over even on the same day. They just took over and, and handled the, the situation so smoothly. And, you know, we have other issues on different trips. You know, we were caught in the middle of uh, fighting, um, borders closing, and you name it, we have been through this. So we have a lot of experience, and the staff is just exceptional. They may not be the most hospitable person, and I tell them Sometimes when somebody complains about one of my staff or something, I said, you know, you're right, you know, um, they could have said nicely, they could have done this and that. But the truth is that where we shine is when when you have a problem, when there's a serious problem, my, my team just jumps in there and, and handles every situation under pressure, like I, uh, as I said, remarkably well. And they make my life easier, but certainly I think you will see we have a tremendous loyal following. People have now done four or five. When I first started the company, I, I thought, you know, across Africa was once in a lifetime. Well, guess what? We have now have people who have come uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve of our epic tours, you know, and, and that's just remarkable that people in their 50s and 60s go away for three, four, five months. Because of the nature of Serbia, we attract younger and older people, and, and this is the only time I know where young and older people who are not relatives bond and keep coming back, and they keep coming back because it's such a remarkable adventure. It's just 
So I know this podcast is heard around the world in over 90 countries, but I do want to tell you about something going on in my hometown. For the entire month of May, we have over 60 different art and flower bikes. Decorated, fully creative, all kinds of styles and patterns and all kinds of creativity. From Vincent Van Gogh to E.T. And they'll be out on display on our main street in Old Historic Weathersfield for the month of May. Today was the opening day and I spoke a little at the ribbon cutting. We do scarecrows in the fall. And I was so happy last year to just have one thing normal as we were walking around looking at all the cool scarecrows we've been doing for years. And I thought about that interview that I did with Flower Bike Man. And thought, why can't we do the same thing that we do with scarecrows but do it with bicycles in the springtime? And I pitched it to some people and they ran with it and brought it into reality. And the whole community came together with their creativity and just to do something to make each other smile and feel happy. So if you want to see what it looks like, it's hashtag bicycles on main OWCT. And right now things look pretty good for the June 13th Bicycle Festival here in Wethersfield. It's really a bicycle show and a swap meet. It happens Sunday morning at Hamner Elementary School in Wethersfield, Connecticut. Last year did get canceled for good reasons, but I, I really miss seeing everybody throughout the year. It was really nice seeing everybody up in Thompson at the what was formerly the Dudley, Massachusetts swap meet the other day. I mean, it was great. There'll be all kinds of bicycles that you can see, you can buy, you can trade. Every generation. One year we had bicycles from two centuries there. So once again, if you're anywhere near us, up in New England, United States, near Wethersfield, Connecticut, in the center of the state. For the whole month of May, we have art and flower bikes on display all up and down our historic Main Street. And on Sunday morning, June 13th, we'll have our annual swap meet and bicycle show at Hamner Elementary. It goes from 8 in the morning to around 12.30 in the afternoon, which allows everybody to go to lunch afterwards and then go out for a great ride. And if you're really far away, we hope to see you someday. So maybe put it on the list for next year. Now back to the show. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. Thank you very much for listening. 
So I'd like to once again thank my guests for this episode and the band Mobjack in Keller Glass for their excellent opening and closing theme music. You can check out their Mobjack albums anywhere and search up Keller Glass to see what his newest projects are. All the other music in the show is royalty free and I appreciate those musicians as well. If you have any questions or comments or maybe an idea for a story, perhaps you'd like stickers, you could contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Don't forget to search me up on Patreon because every little bit helps. And one of the best things you can do to help the show is just to share it with people who you think would like it. I know about half of you are introverts out there, as am I, but you can just say something simple like, Hey, you know that story you have? You should say it on the Bike Karma Show. It's here. And then maybe they'll listen. That'd be pretty neat. A big shout out to two of my kids who I miss very much who are out of state. One's in Vermont and one's in Arizona. Big thank you to Taryn who's been helping me with audio engineering. And my wife who puts up with all my bike stuff. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademarks, and others, are asserted and reserved. I appreciate everyone who's waiting patiently for their stories in the queue. I try and put a little love into every episode. I should probably jump right back into it after I get done with this one. I hope you're well and enjoying the weather where you are. Till next time, keep it wheeled.